Welcome to the Friendly Geordies Podcast. I hope everyone's had a great week. This week we have the spicy segments as usual. However, we do have a guest. Jordan, would you introduce this new guest? I can't introduce him because he's a mystery. And I've kind of just introduced him at the same time because his name is Mystery. <laughs> but, uh, give, give us your backstory in 30 seconds. 30 seconds. <laughs> and we have got the, t- the time of going down. Don't rob us, please. <laughs> Even though we have way more than 30 seconds, make sure it's... No, 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 no. We're running out of time. I'll take it as a challenge. Look, <laughs> name is Mystery from the future. Here to save the world. That's all you need to know. Thank okay. you. There we go. Well, no, there's no more questions, Arlo. He's been covered. Very efficient. <laughs> that was efficient. I'll give you that. That was amazing. <laughs> you need a lot less than 30 seconds. Well, uh, Mystery's, uh, Mystery's personality is going to unravel as the podcast grow continues. Mm. Let's start with the first topic. Jordan, I know that we both have differing views on this. Yeah. The Kang has been Coronated. coronated. That is hilarious that this man in a mask <laughs> is just briefly introduced. And it's like, all right, then let's get into the news. Uh, <laughs> coronation. <laughs> hey, hey, mystery, first off, give us your opinion on the king. What do you reckon? Yeah. Or oh, like the king or monarchies in general? Yeah, well, but actually, yeah, first off, what do you think of Prince Char- King Charles, I should say? Yeah, yeah. Well, useless. Like, it's just useless as an institution. I'm not sure what they're there for. I just guess for public appearances and pictures. Hey, you know what they can actually... Tourism. You know what King Charles can do? I didn't know this until I recently found out. King Charles can dissolve the fucking parliament. How did you not know that? No, I know... Well, I mean, I didn't think... That, that happened here, dude. It did, General. but like, it happened way back in the day. I thought they changed that shit. Nah, no, 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 in. no. It's still in. You can't change... You can... You can uh, I think they've changed it in Australia. No, they haven't. No. The, the, governor, sure the, they gov- have. the governor general can like whack people in the head with, their, with his big staff if he wants. Yeah, I think that's still in the constitution. Shit. Okay, sure well, uh, so he does have crown. some power. Yeah, yeah look, look, they have power. Don't get me wrong, but like what it is they do, I'm not sure, apart from keeping up public appearances. So I would say that they are rather useless and maybe a drain on the public purse. Well, what do you think about, like a lot of British people give this argument. I think this is the most potent one. That essentially the royalty or the monarchs are just the arbiters of uh, politics in the country. So mm. when shit gets too intense, yep. there's an apolitical force that comes in and stabilizes and brings in some stability. Right, right. Because uh, of their like just general wisdom and sage. Well, or not like because of general wisdom, but because of the position that they hold within that society. Right. So people respect. People respect them, and because there's this perception that they're apolitical, they're not partisan. Right. Mm. That and there's also this two thousand year tradition or whatever right. of you know them having that kind of a say and they mm. feel more secure okay. that way. Doesn't that to me it seems like a much more advanced society? The fact that they write it down as there are two types of government. There is the government of the day to day, and then there is the government that upholds the dignity of the United Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Well, that's sick. <laughs> who who else will continue the tradition of cucumber sandwiches? That's what I ask you. Yeah, without the crusts, thank you. <laughs> this is a civilized society. <laughs> crusts off. Okay, what right? Okay, uh, and now to you, Jordan. What right does uh, King Charles have to have this exorbitant amounts of wealth and property? Birthright. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but also, you know what else I just like about it? It's, it's honestly, it's got nothing to do with anything except I do like the aesthetic, yeah, the aesthetic that in this day and age you still have to go down this massive corridor with red carpet if you're like the 
prime minister of Canada or whatever, <laughs> and then there'll be trumpets going, beep, 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 <laughs> and then it'll just be like, all bow down to the king of England, and he has to fucking bow. That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's fucking dope, yeah, dude. Like, cool. I like the fact that it's just this fairy tale thing that still exists, mm. where there's like a guy sitting around with a crown, and you can't be him because you're a filthy commoner. Like, that's <laughs> sick. I like that. Okay, all right, fine. Admittedly, <laughs> it's funnier to have a guy with a crown. <laughs> it is. That owns, like, half the world. It's mad. Yeah, but what that's political so utility is the king providing? Political utility? Yeah. None. No, actually. Symbolic, right? Yeah, there's, 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 there's symbology to it as well, but also... I do actually like the argument as well that it's kind of just like, look, they always give the argument that it's completely offset by tourism dollars anyway, how much they bring in just because there's a monarchy and so people go outside and be like, I, I think that was, no, no, that was just a servant. That, that's like, <laughs> well, how many people are going to not go to England if they were like, yeah, there, there's no monarchy? Yeah. No Heaps. Monarchy. What are you talking Heaps. about? Dude, they, they sign it off with a little passport and they're just like, I just wanted Her Majesty to give me the wave idea. <laughs> <laughs> there's people camping out. They camp out. They camp out. People love them, dude. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I never really, until the Queen Elizabeth died, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then when she did die, I saw all of these beef eaters walking around crying and stuff. I was just like, man, that is sick. Anything that, that is at, at like a yeah. three month okay. funeral. Okay. So according yeah. to you, there's economic <laughs> utility. They provide some tourism dollars. And also apparently this is the other thing as well. All of the lands that they own, 85% of that money just goes straight into the public coffers. And the argument against it would be, oh, okay. Yeah. You just utilize it in public land and then you get like a hundred percent of it or something. But that is, it's not really how I don't know if these it goes like the, Europe works. You know, I don't mm. know if it goes into public coffers. I think what have most of the property that the monarchy owns is owned by the, uh, the institution, not the individual. So the King and the queen, they all had personal property, which is, which is like, you know, it's, it's really good prime locations, but most of their wealth belongs to the royal institution. I think that's what you mean. It's not going to public coffers in the sense... No, no, it does. It does. Well, I know it goes into the, the, the royal coffers, but then a lot of the money that they have in their land ownings, they just divert straight back into British Parliament. They just give it away. Mm, did you guys Did you guys watch um, the Pierce Morgan interview? He got, like, uh, anti-royalists and then, like, two anti-royalists and a, and a pro-royal... Well, Pro Royalist was basically just some guy like on like their Today Show that was like it's, it's so beautiful, such nice garments. But like, did you see that? Yeah, you watched that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the little the little like uh, sort of radical uni student had a lot of points, but you just can't you just can't like talk but down to people and go. It's quite you went to Oxford. I'm good. I'm good for you. You're quite privileged, aren't you? She's like can we stop talking about me? He's like, no, you're quite privileged, aren't you? You see the irony? I see the irony. <laughs> that was sick. It was so good. And then also at the end, just be like, count to 10, come back when you've yes, learned some manners. 10, count to 10. <laughs> Do something useful with your life. Uh, it was, I have to say, like, I, I agree with John. I think it's like, I, I think, oh, sorry. I think there's good, there's, you know, I kind of agree with him, but she did have some, she was busting out the stats and I was like, fuck. You can't really argue with the stats. A lot of people, it is a growing thing against it. I think it's cool, but there's a growing thing against it. But I, th I feel like I couldn't argue with the stats. I was impressed with what she was saying. But then as soon as she was just like, count to 10, come on, breathe, breathe for me. I'm like, 
And I'm back. I'm back on his side. It's too, it's too hilarious. It's too hilarious. Uh, okay. But I also, see. on top of that, I really don't agree with the economic stats that she was bringing out really? anyway. Oh, I, I just get impressed by stats. Someone can be like, 40% of people. And I'm just like, hmm. But maybe you, they weren't accurate? It's like it's it's like they are misrepresenting okay. what actually happens because they they were actually arguing back and it's just like you can't argue with that. It's just they bring in more right. economic utility than they take out of the country oh, sure, anyway. Okay. Like they completely offset. Fair. Fair. But on yeah, it's just like it's I'm telling you, it is just an aesthetic thing to me. It's just like I yeah. used to think that like a republic was a good idea and then I realized it's just gonna be some other fucking grey suit Malcolm Turnbull cunt. Like mm. I'd much rather a guy that wears like a, a fat long cape that has to be held <laughs> by like six people. <laughs> How funny is it that, like, in our courts and stuff, there's just a stern picture of Charles while they're just being like, swear not to lie to His Majesty Charles III. And then there's just a shot of him in an oil painting being like, mm. yeah, just looking yeah. sternly yeah. at you. Yeah, I'm like, dude, I, I, to this day, would actually be a lot more intimidated by that, just being like, do you swear not to lie to uh, Bob Newhart, the third president of Australia? I was just like, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I love Bob Newhart. Yeah. But like him just staring down there with his crown, I'm like, oh, sorry, your majesty. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right, well, look, we all understand that you like an overgrown man wearing a tiara. Let's look at, let's get. Yeah, yeah but what do you, what do you yeah, think, man? Yeah, tell us, tell us. Take on it. Okay, just, first off, aesthetically, do you think it's mad? No, no, no. We, we, we can talk <laughs> about that. Needs, yeah. But also, uh, the context. It's a yes or no question. <laughs> you have 30 seconds from now. <laughs> the Australian context of it, do you think. And maybe it's good for them, but we should change things around. Like, what, what's your take? Oh, yeah, hundred percent. Like, look, I'm a revolutionary, so I believe that the Australian Constitution needs an overhaul, like nothing else. What, so, what changes do you want to see? Well, like the Republic would be nice to start. Why? Why do you want it? Because it gives independence to the people of Australia primarily. <clears throat> so we were talking before about the ability for a king or some type of royal to arbitrarily take away our government or our institutions potentially. So like having that power is... It Sorry, you know what's weird? That Jordan, you are unmasked with your opinion and Mystery Man is unmasked yeah. with his. And our pod is primarily the people that were protesting the coronation. That, that would be most of the people's view. Sorry, Sorry because... Sorry, like, yeah, yeah, no, it needs an overhaul and like making a republic would be a good start, but then there could be more things to be done beyond that. So like actually having proper like rights in our constitution. Like, like a Bill of Rights or something? Like what the Americans yeah. have okay. and like what the French have and all that sort of stuff. We don't have anything like that. Our constitution is literally just like, all right, well, all the states will get together and they'll do this and then they'll report back mm. to the federal government and then the federal government will report back to, I don't know, the crown. And then like that's pretty much the ins and outs of our constitution. Mm. It's not a But do you think it would really change anything functionally if there was a president? Well, look, that's where the devil in the detail comes into the Constitution. So how much executive power do you give to a president? Um, that's that's a really, really good question. That's a million-dollar question. I don't think in, in Australia, like, he wouldn't have any executive power. Right. No, he would right. absolutely still have the power to absolve the government. Yeah, but that's... Give right. him that power. And honestly, I think that that is way more politicised than having some foreign guy there just being like, uh, uh, absolve the Parliament of Australia. Uh, remind me where Australia is. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, but... He just points to China. Ah, oh, yes, Australia. Point. That's a very good <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, I never trusted those commies. A lot of presidents have that power, though. They do get to choose the government and all that sort of stuff, the prime minister. But, like, that's the devil in the detail that you get to when you reconstitute. That's you what get to, you get to decide all of that sort of stuff. So maybe you get to choose as a as a nation your own self determination. I think that's much more important. I mean, Albo's a, a what you would call it that a king. No, well, yeah, he's a king, but he's a, he's a, he's a Republican. He's a he's a. No, they all are. They're all of Labor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I'm not like I'm. T- I am. I'm the eternal centrist. I'm like they both have good points, but I can't. It's for me. It's more aesthetic. I, I, I swear, if you get a president in, it is inevitable that it would be politicized. It would be appointed like they appoint the Supreme Court in the United States, and they'll just stack it mm. to whoever is in power most of the time. Shit. So yeah. you think the royal family might even just be like more of a like lesser of not evils, but a lesser of it's it's like better. And I think yeah, it, it wouldn't just be this kind of pawn that can be made and broken mm. by government. Mm. And the idea that you have to vote for the president every election and just adding this other layer, that's that's ridiculous. That's yeah. not going to happen either. And, like, I, you know, sorry, go on. But let's be real. It's just it's a symbolic thing. So even if it's a governor general or yeah. it's a president, it's yeah. going to be a symbolic thing at Def- the end of the definitely. day. And the thing is, when you guys in Pakistan got your president, or it's the president that has that executive power, right? Uh, no, the prime minister does. The but, prime minister has it. But, the but that's the whole thing. He just became a tool of whoever the president was. Yeah, because in Pakistan, the uh, the president is appointed by the prime minister. Yes. So the prime minister has the prerogative to choose whoever they want, so they'll be subservient to them. However, uh, a simple majority can get rid of a prime minister, but a two, two-thirds majority is required to get rid of a president. Yeah. Oh. It's 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 bullshit. Like it's it, it again. It's a symbolic thing. It makes it doesn't make that much of a difference if you believe that the monarchy. Has whereas, to- whereas having the King of England, someone like Prince Charles, who's a, a, you know fervent, passionate advocate of the environment, has been for the last That's fifty true. years, true. uses his uh, power and title to constantly advocate for changes on this, got to the point where Scott Morrison came up in front. This is what I'm talking about. There, there is a very intimidating factor that there is someone that's just appointed by God to be better than you. <laughs> yeah. You know, Like, it's just there. Yeah. It's always it's the same as when you walk in front of a judge. Why do they still wear the frilly wigs and mm. things like that? Because it's scary. Yeah. And it's intimidating and humbling. And so even Scott Morrison who gets up in front of the UN is like, yeah, we're doing heaps on climate change. Fuck off. To like all the world leaders. Doesn't give a shit. He's like, I'm out. Peace. When he went in front of King Charles, he's like, um, we're, we're, we're just a proof net zero, you know? You know like yeah. He, he's, he's got fear. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you could argue both ways. There's like a psychological fear to a king that a, yeah. that a president just doesn't have. Uh, the problem with the presidents often become is that you, they get tainted as being partisan as well because the way that they get elected, the mm. positions that they have. But the royal family, because of its tradition, is just put up on this neutral pedestal. Which brings me back to my main point because you dodged the question, <laughs> yeah. Mr. A. Yes. Come on. It's funny. <laughs> well, the aesthetic. Yeah. Of yeah, the aesthetic the of a king yeah. in this day and age is yeah. funny. Yeah, yeah, it's hilarious, especially because they're like basically senile. Yeah. Um, yes. And in control. Yes. All additions. Yeah. All additions, yeah. dude. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, it's undeniable that it is fucking laughable. 
That's sick, dude. Finally. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But no one's like... Oh, come on. Come on. You have to say there's some meme value to it. Like, oh, yeah. The, yeah. We didn't even talk about the meme economy oh, here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can't disregard the meme economy. The economical shit. The model's broken. Yeah. <laughs> you missed that you're starting to realise what kind of podcast this is. <laughs> yeah, it's not the same I originally thought. All right. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's switch yeah. some gears. Now that you've gotten the answer that you were looking for, Jordan, let's talk about... Uh, there's a federal budget is about to be announced. Yeah. And these are some of the highlights that we can expect from the next federal uh, budget. So the first is they've confirmed that they will scrap Parents Next program ending compulsory mutual obligation for about 100,000 parents that were placed in this program. So this was a program that was instituted by Scott Morrison in 2018, which I think was essentially a deterrent for single parents to get uh, welfare payments. So in order to qualify for the payments, you had to either go to the, you know, those job things, the job interview counseling sessions that you have to do for job seeker. But additionally, sometimes they had to like go to play schools and uh, organize a play date for their kids in order to <laughs> access their money, which was uh, really annoying. And a lot of um, uh, the unions were criticizing it. So labor has scrapped this. Pro or anti? Anti. <laughs> <I knew it. laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Move it, move, move, move. Obviously, it's awesome, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, single parents will remain on single parenting payments until their youngest child's, uh, child turns 18. This is up from uh, eight years old, I think, previously. Damn. So uh, people that have their youngest child still uh, younger than 14 can expect $176 extra. Uh, energy rebates of up to $500 will be going to 5.5 million eligible households and government payments to once, uh, 1 million small businesses. So this is part of their, uh, uh, what's the, the new program? Cost of living program mm. that they're introducing. So mm. they're going to give energy rebates. Yep. So the amount of money, you know, it's self-explanatory. So I'm happy with that because I have to pay less. Um, people will be... Uh, uh, people will be able to buy two months of uh, certain medications for the price of a single prescription. Buy one, get one free. Hell yeah. <laughs> the pharmacies are against it, but everyone else is pro it. Um, uh, 2.4 billion more in petroleum resource rent tax over the four over the next four years. Um, so this is a new tax that they're introducing for petroleum companies mm -hmm. for rent of you know the places that they're mining it from. So this should add another two point four billion into the coffers. You happy mm -hmm. about that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess everyone's happy I'm about happy. that. Yeah, um, bullshit. <laughs> uh, the tobacco tax. The coal keeps you large on. <laughs> yeah, rebut that, Ollie. Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can't, can you? Uh, tobacco tax will rise by 5% a year over the next three years. So Those bastards. More. More. I, I'm a, I'm a, I disagree with that. Siggies are going to cost more. Uh, I'm, off, I'm off that. From for 1st of July 2025, the tax rate applied to future earnings of superannuation balances above $3 million will be 30%. We've discussed this particular policy, so no one has a problem with that. <laughs> Uh, the government has committed $2.2 billion in primary health care services, an additional $2.2 billion. Uh, there's a $234 million war chest to combat vaping. Ooh. Look, it's for the best. I, I, 
I, I'm anti the tobacco, but I'm pro 63 that. million of it is going to go on information campaigns. We discussed that on the last pod. Are you uh, pro... Do you know what vaping is, Mr. E? I, I have been oh, vaping yeah. and partaking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they banned Yeah, it, right? get on board. <laughs> are, you, are you pro that or anti? I, what, like pro... Pro, 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 the yeah, pro, pro the ban. Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's unfortunate. Really? Yeah. Yeah, like tobacco taxes, any type of drug restriction, anything like that should be a choice up to the individual. Respect. And the government should be able to tax it, I think, any way they see fit. But like banning something doesn't solve the problem. That was a consensus from Mr. our yeah, discussion as well. Mr. If Mr. anything, no, it wasn't in the comment. It makes mm. it more desirable. Mm. Um, yeah, look, I think that we all thought the same thing. It would be better if they just taxed it as unfairly as they did yeah. cigarettes and just yeah, get rich off the 10-year-olds. that thing was like 200 <laughs> bucks a pop. Exactly, that's yeah. exactly people, the number I was 10. Yeah. People would still buy it. People like, would still buy it. Yeah, that's They'd true. ration that's it true. for sure. All right, there'll be 11.3 billion funds, so 15% pay rise for aged care workers. Say AIDS care? Aged care. Uh. Well, no, they didn't say AIDS care. <laughs> <laughs> Just what is this, the 80s? I don't know. Does anyone have AIDS anymore? Yeah. Well, didn't they just go out with like, uh, you, know, you know, like car doors that go like. <laughs> Dude, I'm so stuck in the past. Age care. Well, it's a big problem. So. And this is something, Jordan, you've got to shed some light on this because I think you might know a little bit about this. So the NDIS Minister, talk. Bill Shorten has promised a fresh crackdown on uh, providers, price gouging, products and services. For people with disabilities, sharing information about National Cabinet last week agreed to cap on the growth of the scheme to 8% a year to keep on the handle of rising costs in an effort to keep the system sustainable. The NDIS was the fastest growing expense in October budget outside the interest payments to our national debt. Mm. So NDIS keeps getting more and more expensive, and they've now capped it to a maximum of 8% uh, per year rise. Mm-hmm. What do you, because you know a little bit about NDIS and its problems. Is that, is that going to fix it? I don't understand yeah, how you're going to cap 8%. And so, like, what people with disabilities, some people with disabilities are not going to get it? No, that's what was happening under the Liberals. And the reason is, is because, and Mr. E, you'd know all about this. The Liberals, the reason everything goes up under the Liberal Party is because they fire public servants and then hire consultants to do the same job at double the cost, except they don't do it because then they sit there and write all these bullshit reports about, oh, it's not running efficiently and it's not because we're in charge of it. The end. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's why. It's just because they just keep privatising these government institutions. And when, when you do have them just controlled by someone like Bill Shorten, who is actually making sure that these payments are going to quadriplegics as opposed to the consultant that's supposed to look after quadriplegics yeah. like it, it, it it's like 8% would be more than enough of a cap but I feel like a lot of this is probably coming from companies that are providing those services under the insurance scheme yes like that's the whole thing and he's, he's weeding out all of those scam artist ones now I want to make this point very clear and actually Mr. E this is probably something you don't agree with but I think that the reason that Australia has an insurance scheme as opposed to like a single payer option is so much better because it combines private with public. And the thing is that there are a bunch of private institutions, say with the NDIS, that are working on groundbreaking uh, treatments for the disabled that governments, just because of how rigid they are, they first off wouldn't even think of them because these are all just done by like little sectors that think, yeah, okay, we can do something in this area and find a niche out of it. So you do want 
private companies in on this and you want to be incentivizing their innovations. You do not, however, want what the Liberal Party had, which is just, oh, we can use this as a huge doll for all of our fucking shyster shark companies that can come in here and offer all those, like, you know, buy one neck brace and get two <laughs> neck braces free. It's a good point. It's a good point. But, like, you have to make sure the infrastructure is there then to regulate those private entities that are running off the insurance scheme. Yes. Without that, like, it just is thrown to the wolves. Yes. It's just, like, another unregulated market, laissez-faire, like, just go for your life, boys. To um, be fair, I think that's also a point that Bill Shorten makes and saying that we will ensure that there's regulatory yeah. framework. And there hasn't been good oversight of the NDIS. Yeah, and that's what it they've also been, been arguing uh, been under the Liberal government. mine for a lot of yeah. private companies. Yeah. And, like, they don't provide services. They no. siphon mm. cash. Shit. Yeah. And they do it bloody well. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Really well. Well, because again, as you were saying, there was no oversight. Mm. It was like with welfare payments. They just left it to a robot and said, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, here's another thing. I don't know how you guys are going to feel about this. Uh, new tax breaks for investment in build-to-rent housing. Huh? So I think there's going to oh. be investments for people that get a property to rent out. Really? Yeah, I mean... Dangerous market. That doesn't seem. It's it's it is, but market. this is what uh, this it goes back to like a point that I made ages ago about rent vesting. How that's such a good mm. economic decision, and more so now. If you're a young person that is unable to get into the property market to get a house for yourself, if you want to game the system, a really good way is to not go into a house to live in, buy a house to live in. You should keep renting. And you should get a property to rent out. The advantage of that is you get amazing tax breaks. But secondly, uh, it's not a huge drain on your financial resources because someone else's rent is sort of subsidizing it. It actually makes... So if there were two apartments right next to each other and you got a mortgage for one to live in, as opposed to you getting a mortgage to rent it out and living in literally the next apartment that's same price everything under rent you're still making like i think 5 or 6000 dollars a year easy on top of it just because they're invest, uh they're incentivizing people that get properties as an to investment rather than living so yeah it might be bad like it probably is going to increase some of the property woes there's going to be a lot of people that have more properties and some people that have zero properties mm. however if you want to play the game, then you should definitely look into getting something of that sort for yourself or for someone else, but for you to pay. The way I understand that build-to-rent works, though, it's not like mums and dads that are building houses or dwellings for people to rent. It's your you know, multinational corporations, your Meritons, your Novaks and stuff like that. They buy a whole block and they put up hundreds and hundreds of apartments and then they have a stranglehold on that market. And so they get to decide as the evil landlord how it works in their block and their neck of the woods. So it, it opens the door, I think, for more large-scale developers to wreak havoc because, like, selling, you know, selling your product off, buying uh, a block of land, developing, selling it off, there's, there's nothing in that. Like, you, you make your money and then you move on to the next project. But if you build this massive community almost and you hold them to ransom because you're bleeding them constantly as an evil landlord 
it's a better cash cow for the long term. So I, I wouldn't say that it's like going to benefit individuals. They're not in on the build to rent game. Mm. It's just big companies, companies right. that are big enough to build like these new communities almost. Yes. However, you are changing their behavior. But like not, un- not unless you regulate them. Like there's no rent controls that I'm aware of in Sydney or Australia. Like there are markets in other parts of the world where there's private property and housing is like more of a commodity and they control the rent. They in America they do that. Yeah. Australia is just like pretty relaxed on that type of stuff. She just moved the microphone a little bit closer to you. Yeah. I the thing, the thing with that though is, that, uh, go on. No, I 100% agree with you in the sense that like, obviously this isn't the mom and pop that are buying these massive suburbs and these, they mm. buy like entire suburbs and they build houses. So the yeah. profits they make are exorbitant. And this is obviously going to mostly help them. Mm. However, a lot of Australian middle-class people also depend on this, like buying property game yeah. to yeah. Uh, make savings and retire eventually. Yes. So Again, like in a cosmic sense, you're right. Like it's it's probably gonna. This is not the way to fix the issue. However, if you're like in the middle class and you've got a job, then you can make mm. some money out of the scheme. But obviously, most of the money is going to be made by big property moguls that buy entire suburbs right, and develop right. them. If it's being sold off to the individuals, then 100. percent If they're building, you know, big developments and they're going to give that off to people to have privately and use as an investment, then it helps. It's going to be a bit of both, man. And like, you're right as well. Most of it is going to be those massive property moguls without regulation because it's being encouraged. They're also getting tax breaks. So, and they're going to build shitty apartments like in this (laughs) suburb that are going to fall down in basically 10 years. But they'll make a killing out of it because by the time they collapse, they're already moved on somewhere else. They're not, they don't have the piece in the game. Mm. Yeah, but the thing is, look, when, when you are in a country like Australia where it is the basically driving factor of our economy at this point. Like, it does rival the mining industry. You can't really stop them from making money. They're they're too powerful at this point. So really all you can do is just nudge them into, you know, doing things that are just a bit more beneficial to society than they would be otherwise because it's just... But knowing that too much power there. Knowing that power, isn't it indicative then that if they're bringing in new legislation and rules to allow people to build to rent types of housing that that's probably a push that's come from that industry not from like policymakers who are trying to make housing more affordable that's that could be the case but the the other way that it could be actually is that public uh officials knowing that would be kind of like all right let's sit down at the table let's figure out a way that you can make money and we can sort this out you know like it's like a rational way of because this is this is the whole thing i think that people don't really understand about the success of the labor party is that instead of just sitting there and saying we're just going to punish the billionaires all the time they've they figured out long ago it's like no you have to let the billionaires make money otherwise they just crush you you just have to say to them like make money like out of hydrogen instead of out of coal i like to be fair i don't I might be wrong, but I don't think this push is actually coming necessarily from property moguls or lobbyists. I think there's also a dearth of rental properties. Now, that's not to say that there aren't enough properties in Australia for people in Australia, Mm. but the incentives for renting out something for big, like really, really rich people is low when you know that just by sitting on a property for three years, 
you can make double the value. Yeah. Why do you have to deal with renters? And so there's a there's a, re a huge requirement, and particularly with migration coming back now after COVID, of uh, of places to rent. Yeah. And so there's this push by mm. people saying like we aren't able. You know, you saw how the rental market was uh, a month ago when you were trying to get this place. There would be like 50 people outside yeah. and they would all just give extra money and get it. Like that's what's forcing the government to do it. But mm. it will eventually lead to what you're saying, Mystery Man. It's not necessarily going to fix the problem. It's just going to mm. make some property or, or moguls a lot richer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why were those people out on the street to begin with all looking for places to rent? Because I think they were kicked out on mass by the landlords that were in charge of those buildings at the time. Yeah, well, the they interest well, not just them. Like, let's let's put blame where it lies. Mum and pop investors as well. Mm. They yeah, there's got that in on too. That. That's an uh, that's uh, look. I I sympathise with Mr. Emmanuel, but that's a point that sometimes uh, people in the left forget that it's not just big property owners. It's also like, how many people do you know, boomers, that you know that own like three or four properties? Mm. There's so many of them. Yeah. And they all, like, if you're in that age group, that's just how you made money. Yeah. You bought, like, you kept yeah. buying properties, and now you're a middle-class person that happens to have seven properties. Yeah. Somehow. But that was the Australian dream. Yeah. It was sold that. Yeah. And they bought into it hardcore. Yeah, but that's, they do behave in exactly the same way that the big corporations do, in that they saw, oh, rental crisis, advantage... Terry, you know, it's yeah, kind of one of those things of like, come on, you, you do exactly the same. If you don't, don't act like maybe one percent of you would be moral about it. You can leave it. It's like, why is the rent here so cheap? It's just like, no, no reason. There is one small, one small clause though. I'll leave this gramophone on, and uh, if it stops playing Sting at any moment, you will be instantly evicted. They're like, ah, worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Brand new day. Oh, and also, uh, yeah. Mystery just lives here and sometimes just magically appears. <laughs> <laughs> he might perform Gives you lectures about it. But he's, we don't know much about it. That's part of the deal. He might... He performs it. That's going to might happen. But I'll keep my mask on. So it's yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you said there was no need to put a mask on your penis. <laughs> I'm right, up to it. So a couple of more things, <laughs> mostly related to defense spending, which we know has gone up because of AUKUS, and also uh, some more uh, money for TAFE. But let's move on from the budget forecast. When it comes out, we can do a deep dive into it. Let's move on to Mystery Man, your mm. segment. Okay. Why are you here? Well, look, Jordan asked me to be on here. I mean, yes, yeah. yeah uh, to like, to speak about Marx, though. Yeah, he's right? answering your question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? And <laughs> revolution. I Mystery hope. Man, we've, uh, I've heard that you've got a YouTube channel. Mm. Uh, what's it called again? Mystery. Uh, it's called yeah, Mystery. Spell it cor correctly for yeah. them. So. M-Y-S-T-E-R-E. Mystery. Mystery. Yeah. Well, with a capital E at the end, right? Yeah, yeah, to emphasize that E. So there's mystery <laughs> movement is the handle if you're the looking for it. nature of life. A little yeah. birdie told me that you're a revolutionary. What, is, what does that true. mean? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Oh, look, the revolutionary is someone who is just looking to make change, societal change, that is. Now, a lot of people think, you know, the word revolution, It's I would say it's been tarnished by propaganda, but you think of revolution as like the uh, armed struggle and the takeover and the resulting uh, change in government or a coup or something like that. But revolution is not that. Revolution is, is just a process of change. And like we were talking about before, 
constituting that change. The real revolutionary acts, if you think about the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or something like that, was not the armed takeover. But when they sat down the next day and were like, oh, shit, we did this. <laughs> what the fuck do we do now? Yeah, the day after. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. revolution. So, like, revolution <laughs> is not, yeah, it's not an armed struggle. It's not a physical thing. It's actually about planning a better world for whatever that means for the people that have it in their mind. So, so we'll, we'll talk about what that better world looks like. Sorry, I'm going to take over a little bit. But what's, what are the sort of things that you want to change? Right. Okay, that's good. Look, if we're going to lead down a Marxist trajectory at some point, like revolution in that sense is about changing the world for working people. Mm-hmm. So from that stems every other type of improvement that you could have to society. So if you improve society for the majority of people as opposed to the minority minority of people that might control things like people call them the establishment or elites or something like that, those people kind of produce everything in their own interests and like everything kind of works around them. But if you started working society for the majority of people out there, then that would be a revolutionary act. And that is kind of my take on revolution. So I'm just trying to make a change for the majority of people out there. How do we how do we make it work for the majority mm. without screwing up the system where it eats itself? Because you know, yeah. Look, I've I've when throughout my uni years, I was part of the communist movement. I've dabbled yeah. into that entire realm myself. But one dabbled. of the, but one of the, <laughs> it's a good word. <laughs> it's a dabble, yeah. It's hey, you word. know, you know when I was wearing a mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember <laughs> it well. Shit. Obama's a war criminal, man. <laughs> 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 but when we, uh, but w- w- a lot of the pushback that I got was yeah. that the examples of revolutionary change, like you mentioned, mm. the Russian one, or you could argue, yeah. uh, you know, the Chinese one, yeah. have not led to uh, societies that we n- might necessarily envy. Yes, but they are still revolutionary nonetheless mm-hmm. because they've enacted some form of change. Now, whether that change is good, an improvement, that's like the million dollar question. Um, but like they gave it a shot. They so gave it, it a good crack. So okay, so I, I, I not this isn't a gotcha question. This is a mm. genuine question, and you can yeah. answer. You're wearing a mask, so you can answer yeah. this like honestly. Yeah. Are you? Was the experiment <laughs> worth it? Was the 20th century revolutionary experiment worth it? Yes, absolutely. It was unfortunate how it unfolded, and it was unfortunate how it ended. But like that was the culmination of like the class consciousness of the majority of people. They attempted to try and change society in some way, shape or form because they understood that they were ultimately being fucked over by it. Like in every which direction and every way they turned. So they gave it a shot and they believed in people that they thought would provide them with that opportunity for a better life. Now, like what you're saying is that a lot of those things ended up in, I guess, horrendous situations where you have like potentially the deaths of millions of people or people starving like in the Chinese cultural revolution depending on the whims of like one tyrannical leader but like they did have some solid ideals to start with and like they did I think in their inception start from a place of like good intent they did actually try to change the capitalist system 
and try and bring on something that was an evolution of that. So they weren't trying to revert back to something from the past, which is another form of revolution, which is actually the, the definition of revolution. If you think about the actual word, it's revolution is coming back around again. And that's what revolution actually meant back in the day, like for feudal societies. It was like disposing one king to bring back the one that you actually liked. And so you come full oh. circle. But revolution now and today has more of a, a kind of like a, a narrow trajectory. It's just like going forward or changing from this to that and never going back again. Mm. So revolution now, like I said before, it's tainted. It's got this perception of bloodshed and like adversity um, and hardship. And like, you know, if you want to create a revolutionary society, you're going to have to take on a lot of sacrifices because it's for the greater good and all that sort of stuff. But that's just one form of revolution. And is, is let's say we go into a revolutionary society and we do bring about some massive change, right? Mm. Some kind mm. of like October revolution kind of an extra yep. change. Yep. Not necessarily what it entailed, but um, do we stay in that revolutionary frame of mind or is mm. there like a destination where we could be like, okay, now we've reached utopia, no Excellent more revolutionary. Question. So I think it is um, inherently uh, an an idea that comes from living in a capitalist society or the society that we have now to think that like this is just the highest point of human social evolution. This is the highest form of civilization we're ever going to get living in a market society. And so, no, revolution keeps on going forever because humans are always changing. Hang on, hang on. This is back out of the, What is not a market society? What is not a market society? A what, is, what else society, is there? A slave society? So where like if but there's no such thing as like a slave society, is there? Like that that was a market. Well, look, that was the way that the goods uh, were produced in society on the back of slaves. A sector of the economy, yeah. Yes, but the 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 sector of the economy that produces all the things that you have around you, the economic mode of that society is the the main driving force of that society. That's a Marxist idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. and so like a feudalist society is also one that isn't. But the thing is, they they are though, aren't they? Because there's still commodities getting traded. Yeah, there's still commerce. There's still trade. There's all that sort of stuff that's happening. But the main the, the means of production, if you want to use that uh, that term, which is bastardized now, but it's 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 true to what it, it means. The, the the way that most of the stuff is produced in that society that drives everyone. So you have a class of people, the working class that produces all the shit that everyone needs to survive and everyone else lives off top of that, whether that's an upper class or a, an educated class, an administrative Don't class. Don't forget the, the fat catch in Canberra. <laughs> Political <laughs> class, like whoever it is, there's one sector of society that produces all the shit that everyone needs and everyone else feeds off that, like your worker bees and all the other types of bees or whatever in the hive that are, that are living off that system. The economic mode, so that would be a slave society, you know, in ancient times, they produced all the shit that everyone lived off, basically. Majoritively, there was other people producing stuff as well, don't get me wrong. In a feudal society, you have the serfs or the peasantry that produce all the shit that everyone lives off. It feeds their armies, feeds the clergy, feeds the, the aristocracy, whatever you want to call it. How do we reconcile... This is something that I have had difficulty reconciling, like mm. Marxism, particularly in today's time. Because what you're saying... Although people did argue against it, but it, you could say that during Marx's time or even in the 20th century, that was fair. But what do we, how do we look at like this 
AI productivity, where mm. a lot of like, let's say that uh, Tesla Gigafactory, right, where it was mostly done by robots. Yeah, yeah. So the labor is essentially machinery in this case. Yes. So who 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 gets the economic benefits from it? From like like the production of like machines making other. Yeah. So let's say Tesla like factory that. is completely automated, right? Yeah. L- assuming it's not at the moment, but let's say yeah. it is. There's someone that owns Tesla, right? Yep. There's a group of people that own yep. Tesla. And then there's machines that are making Tesla. Mm. And then we are essentially uh, consumers of yes. Tesla. Yes. So if the Gigafactory is producing 50,000 Tesla cars a year yeah. uh, by machines, mm. who gets to appropriate that economic uh, advantage? Okay, so like in a situation like that, it really just comes down to then not who are the productive class of society, but then who owns the means of production which is the other flip side, I guess, of Marxism and revolutionary thought, is who controls all of the means of producing everything. So if that's owned by one person or a private entity that's just producing all of these cars, let's say, they are the class that controls that sector of the economy. If you're talking about value, who's actually creating value there, that's a whole different rabbit hole. It'll take yeah, actually, that's a, a rabbit time. hole that I don't know if everyone wants to go into, yeah. but the idea that, you know, the use value, of, uh, like the, ser- uh, the labor provides all value, yes. in that case, who's providing value? But in that case, who's providing value will be the people that make It's the, the robots, th- right? No, it's the people that make the machines that make the machines. Yeah, but when, 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 when the machines start making the machines, that's the world he's talking about, right? Yeah, like yeah, at that yeah, point... Yeah. But, like, someone made the machine to make the machine. Someone made the artificial intelligence. Their labor was quintessential in that process. And without their labor, then you wouldn't have a machine to make machines with. So you think that the tech nerd should have the all of that money? The tech nerd or group of tech nerds that put that stuff together have more of a right to it than Tesla. Mm. Yeah, but like right, sometimes right. Tesla is made by nerd geeks. But at some yes. point, that machine that that guy made... yeah. That machine will start making machines. Yeah. And so what? He just keeps getting the royalties from that machine that made the other machines because that machine now has consciousness and it's just like, nah, yeah, I can like do you, it better. Yeah, if you think of like... Or do you give the money to that robot? Well, look, this is like huge, <laughs> huge thought experiment <laughs> stuff here. Robocup. Robocup goes to street clubs. But like this is huge thought Damn, they're running out of here. ideas. <laughs> but like essentially, yeah, if you had a, a, a consciousness, like we have people that have consciousness and like contribute their time and effort to make stuff, and you allow a robot to do all that conscious activity and they start producing shit on their own, and allowing us to survive, then technically all of us then become that dominant class. We're Damn. All, we're all the capitalists that control these group of robots who are in servitude and serve us and provide all of our basic needs. But like, So would you be fighting for the robots' rights like, then? But from the first person that picked up a stone and used it as a hammer or a tool, like, would you fight for the rights of the stone? Probably not. I wouldn't be fighting for the rights of the machine because we've produced them to make our lives easier. So if we get to that level and there are machines that just take over and do all of our stuff for us and we just get to live human existences, the whole idea of someone making money off those machines would become superfluous. It would be completely absurd because what the hell would you need money for? Someone, There is an entity out there, a conscious entity, a machine building all and making all the shit you, we need to survive. People wouldn't need money anymore. People wouldn't need to live in a market system. Because everything would just be done for them by machines. 
All right, let's let's rewind because Jordan's been uh he's been uh discussing Marxism for the last two pods. So yeah, no. As soon as four guys are on a podcast, it just turns into. <laughs> what do you think about AI? Yeah, yeah. So we'll move away from AI because a lot Big of it is conjecture. It's also just like you know what? That is the first thing that I've heard someone say about AI that I wasn't like. Shut up! I'm like, just nerd. <laughs> so uh, let's 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 go into some of the history. Uh, yeah. Of well, uh, yeah. I've got actually a good question about this. First yeah. off, like you would have to admit that this, uh, like, look, I, I know that I make a huge point on friendly Geordies about never using these words, but you kind of just have to when you're talking about this, right? Yeah. yeah. But. That so-called capitalist revolution, let's just say, uh, where you know means of production were kind of just made by someone who organised a bunch of people in a factory to be, say, like all of you focus your efforts on making, let's use this example, the car, because yeah. say someone like Henry Ford, for instance, yeah, yeah. before that, the people's labour, because they would have just been working as shoe shine boys or whatever, yeah. would have been like let's say fifty cents a day. Yeah, and then Henry Ford is like, "Come work at my factory." Yeah, you don't need to learn any more skills. You just need to go on this machine all day. All of a sudden, your labor's worth five dollars mm. times ten increase in their uh, economic outlook on life. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, and, but like Henry Ford was also iconic because of what he did for the idea of mass production. Before that, the car was inaccessible to most people; it was a luxury item. Yeah. And he made that accessible because of the way that he mass produced a car and one make of a car, the Ford, the Model T or whatever it was called, the yeah. Ford Fiesta. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm actually, I'm unsure of what your question is. Like, well, I'm just saying, say? like, I, I don't know. It's just when the more I went into this, the more I started realizing. Look, man, like. It's like with everything. It's like, yeah, there's, there's, there's positives and negatives. And one of the big positives was it greatly increased the quality of life for most people. Mm. Now, there was obviously environmental impacts and all this yep, kind of yep, stuff. But, yep. uh, uh, you know, organizing society like that has given us the future wonder world that we live in now yes. where we're just so yes. unbelievably productive that... You, like you look at the inventions that are happening every year now and it's just like it's just kind of like uh i don't know year zero yeah to now yeah and then it's like henry ford invents the factory and it goes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> look if i can just bust a few myths then about what like marx's thought was and revolutionary his form of revolutionary thinking like he was all for capitalism okay like he was probably one of the first to admit, not the first, but okay, he was openly admitting that capitalism has provided the world with unprecedented productive power, yes. which is to go back to what we were talking about before. There is no machine like the capitalist mode of production. Slave society got nothing, feudal society got nothing on that stuff. Mm. Like Capitalism is absolutely revolutionary in itself yep. and it has pulled the world out of feudal style arrangements and property relations meaning people get more shit mm. okay and ford was beautiful in that he mass produced what the previous industrial capitalists were giving to the world he just made it mass production so like all of us plebs could have access to this shit mm. so capitalism is amazing it can do that it can innovate it can change technology like what you're saying 
unbelievingly, almost exponentially, right? But that is just step one of the process. Once you start on a trajectory where you start giving people more or a higher living standard and you start tearing them off the land and bringing them into cities and, like, they start living closer together and having to work together to produce shit as opposed to just living, like, separately all over the world, they're starting to become more conscious they're going to ask for more shit. But they're not just going to ask for more shit. They're going to ask for a bigger slice in the pie and they're going to want more autonomy. They're not going to put up with a small group of people that control everything anymore. They're going to want a new society that meets their new expectations. Mm. And that's where capitalism falls over. But here's the question. Is it possible to organise society like that without a small group of like a bit like kind of like generals organizing an army well we talked about that before people have tried and they have always come up short it would seem lenin gave it a good crack and look what happened eventually in russia but this is the whole thing about russia for instance like now that i'm arguing the other point but both russia and china their living standards increased exponentially as well they, they, they had much higher living standards in russia and china yeah. but like lenin had to do something fucking incredible and so did like Mao. they had to not only revolutionize their society to try and bring it to a socialist or a communist one they actually had to turn it into a capitalist society to start first with. yes they all knew that you don't go from fucking feudalism to capitalism sorry to socialism you got to put that extra step in and it's capitalism this is what we're going back to talking about before marx knew that capitalist production was the way to go mm-hmm. it's the start of all things that are beautiful to come but first you've got to deal with capitalism and then you've got to keep going towards the next step which right, is socialism. right but that's not inevitable and Marx taught that and knew that greatly. He spoke about it a lot in his work. It's not an inevitable step, socialism. I thought Marx did say that it was inevitable, that eventually there will be a workers' revolution because of the exploitation. As long as the working class are conscious. And I think over the last 50 years, class consciousness has dropped out of like the lexicon. Like Nobody uses the word working class anymore. It's a dirty mm. word. And that is on purpose. Yes, but why do you think that happened? Why do I think it dropped out? Mm. Well, look, if, it depends how much you want to go into modern history, I guess. But like post-World War II, you've got to think of the world as like kind of split between East and West, basically. And like American hegemony was going to start making its big claim to the whole world. Okay, And so it needed to do that by one way and that was to kind of dispel this growing idea which was communism like most of europe had communist parties or if not all of europe and communism was on the rise as like an ideology like massively and so in the like the aftermath of world war ii the americans had to get in there and like they said look we'll restore you europe but everyone on this side of the wall here you get rid of and eradicate these communist ideals they're not allowed to be part of any of your democratic institutions and they became outlawed. And it was just a matter of time until, I guess, the wall fell until they got the rest of people that would consider themselves communists, apart from China. But then by the 70s, you have China opened up to world the world market and then the rest is history. Like, China's not communist. But it's not like he owns a monopoly on the idea of 
the working class being mm. in class consciousness, like no. like Marxists no. and communists, and yeah. like for instance, that's just classic <laughs> Labor Party rhetoric. They're always appealing to the working class. Yes, like there are all these yes. workers' parties that yeah. are still thriving across the planet, form yeah. government all the yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, and like that's another let's bust a few more myths about Marx. Like Marx was not the inventor of communism or socialism or anything like that. A lot of people do think that he is, but like he was just riding on the wave of very popular enthusiasm in the 1850s and like onwards. Like he, when he sat down and wrote the Communist Manifesto with with Engels. Like, they were just riding the wave of popular support for that ideal. People had seen what capitalism had produced for industrial workers, which was fucking pretty hardcore and horrendous working conditions, and they just thought that with all the technological progress that they had, all the increases to living standards and all that sort of stuff, they were just like, well, fucking, why don't we get to make a decision on this shit? We're the ones at the coalface. So let's decide what to do with the fruits of our labour. So it's an ideal first. Marx did say it was inevitable in the sense that of his like dialectical view of, of history and all that sort of stuff. But like again, it's very important that the people know. Like the people have to be conscious of their own position in the economic system to want to fight for a better future or it- one that they have a say in. Not just complain about it. It's a lot of uh, burden. This is the problem with it. It's a lot of burden on society to say everyone should be participating and democratizing and making political decisions. When you know you factor in things like people's just will, their yeah. natural psychological will. It's got yeah. nothing to do with the system. It's just to do with do that. Can they be bothered? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's another thing of uh, people's just varying intelligences. There's also just the fact that, like, you know, a lot of people are just happy doing a nine to five. Yes. There's yes. all that. Yeah. And, and like, I think that plays in, like, like let's take the last thing you said there, people are happy doing a nine to five. I don't think, like, socialism, uh, on, a, on a step away from capitalism, presupposes that anyone has to do more than a nine to five. In it, if anything, they might actually work less mm. because if they democratise their workplace, they all might decide to have a three-day working week instead. So, like, But then you're really reducing productivity. Isn't this the problem that France had recently where they tried to put in a four-day weekend and then they realised we just can't compete? We're, we're well, getting left in the dust. Like, that's not necessarily true. Even if you look at like Soviet uh, economic uh, measures, like they were not less productive. Like they were actually probably producing more than the West was. The what they did. But were they work, having four day work weeks? Uh, well, in some cases they didn't necessarily have four day work week. But the idea and utopia of socialism was that you work uh, like what nine to three or whatever in your day job, then you go play guitar for whatever. The whole <laughs> idea was like Marx was essentially trying to say that it's the whole backwards dialectics thing, the backwards and forwards thing that uh, capitalism only looks at forward. So they look at like a person as uh, labor, like the, the amount of utility that person can provide, but it discounts that it's a human being that has like all of these different intricacies about them. And so Marx was kind of bringing that forward and saying, how can we make a, a, a system where we can cater to all of these sort of needs. So the idea was that you go back and you, you know, you do whatever you want and you do work less but the one thing that I don't know if, uh, like, you can sort of tell me more about it if I, in case I'm getting something wrong. Yeah. yeah. But it did kill innovation. Right. Like, uh, if you look at Soviet mm. cars, for instance, mm. right? 
they were maybe they were producing more cars than yeah. Ford was in certain cases. Yeah, yeah. But Ford had better cars. Right. And one of the things that capitalists often say is that mm. the reason why that is is because um uh the competition angle of everything. Like yeah, uh, yeah. and there's multiple things that are competing against one another. Yeah. They're trying to get more and more market share. Mm. That leads to them having this need to innovate yes. because that's the only way you can get market yes. share as opposed to if you, you know, if you've got state-run enterprises mm -hmm. that are producing stuff but are not necessarily innovating because they don't necessarily need to innovate. Yes. So when it comes to, I guess, the, the laws of coercive competition, as Marx would call it in terms of like, you know, capitalists fighting against each other to create that next level of innovation or whatever to have the edge on their competitors to be able to get a bigger slice of the market. Capitalism does that to perfection. Like it does it really, really well. But the other thing that capitalism also does, which no one really talks about for some reason, um, and like someone like Adam Smith was all over this, it monopolizes industry as well. So once yeah. they get a little bit bigger, yes. they'll eat their neighbor. Yes. And then they don't have to compete with them. And yes. then they don't have to compete with you either. And they don't compete with you yeah. until you get to a situation where there's like a cartel of maybe a few of the biggest players out there. And you think that they're innovating at lightning pace, but they could have been doing so much better yes. if there was a hundred of them as opposed to 10. Yes. But like, because it's a market system, oh, you know, there's about five of them. So they must be doing okay then. But like a state-owned enterprise, something like, let's take the Soviet Union. Like, I do want to try and, like, you know, remove the ideas of socialism slash communism from the Soviet Union. But, like, but they let's had a just crack. look at it as a planned economy. They had a good crack. And if you think about what they did, taking Russia, which was basically a feudal society, when they took it over in, let's say, like, they really started kicking into gear in 1921 to, like, the 60s, like, we're talking about, what, 40 years, they've gone from feudal society to space-age society. That's nuts. That's like crazy. You don't, you don't do learn that. that on your Ben Shapiro daily wire, like, do you? Just, like, no, like, think about it, like, just, like, objectively. Don't think about the political influence yeah, that yeah. what's actually happening. Yeah. Like, they piggybacked the ideas of capitalism to do that. They industrialised their country. But they went from fucking feudalism to space age society and kicking the Americans' ass at fucking space race, yeah. let me just say. So fuck making cars if you can put men in space or dogs in space or monkeys or whatever the fuck <laughs> they were doing at the start. Hell yeah. Right? They were competing where they chose to compete. And if it wasn't producing Model T Ford, it was producing a fucking rocket ship. Let them produce a rocket ship. That's, that's a, a good argument, that's man. That's a really good point. And often underappreciated, like, the, the colossal growth of the Soviet Union in that period, particularly the early phases of it. And how much it went down once the Americans came in with Yeltsin. Yeah, well, yes. Like, the society just went... I mean, oh, sorry, I you could argue that, it, like, the system had already reached the threshold where they had to do it. Because they didn't have many options. Um, having said that... Mm. You mentioned about like how uh, you want to make a society that serves the many. The mm. question is, sure, that they were a space force and they definitely beat uh, the US in reaching the moon and everything. But was it a better society for the majority? Was right. the average right. Soviet citizen... Mm. Like, how come they were trying to get to the west of the wall and no one was going from the west to the east? Right. And this is why, like I said, I prefaced all of that by saying I really want to separate... Soviet society and socialism, communism, because I think they're completely different things. Like the Soviets had a planned economy, which a lot of people associate with socialism because you've got to plan stuff to make it work as opposed to just letting the market decide, that kind of thing. So, like, 
in that sense, um, like they did a lot of good economically. But like what you're saying is socially they went into like totalitarian territory, which is like from a kind of, let's say, civil rights perspective is like the worst shit that you can do, right? You don't just, just control people like in an authoritarian way. You also control their entire life, how they think, what they see, everything about that. So like they had to go down that way in order to survive in a capitalist world and marx always talks about this but socialism the change from capitalism to the next phase is an international movement or nothing the biggest mistake the russians made or the stalinists made or whoever was that they became insular if you do not promote the socialist revolution outside of your borders and you just shut up shop and just try and make sure that you can survive in a capitalist world capitalism will eat you every day it might take 10 years it might take 50 it doesn't matter that's kind of a bit of a misnomer anyway isn't it well not misnomer but but they did fund a lot of proxy wars and a bunch of parties throughout the world so they were doing it but it's also like what what else can you do when everyone else is like no that's a bad idea yeah yeah. you can't have to shut up shop you have to like they they did they were facing some prodigious and like unprecedented challenges The, the ability for like the russians to turn around what they did like after their like their revolution and like produce what they did with like Russian society is just fucking unfathomable yeah. and revolutionary. Yeah. But it's not socialist. So like, you know, it's it's not really communist at the end of the day because they got eaten by the capitalist machine. So unless you keep pushing beyond your borders, like they intended, like Lenin said, like, you know, <coughs> We'll, we'll do what we can with Russia, but we're really wait, waiting for Germany to have its revolution, for Britain to have its revolution. Because once they do, like, there's no stopping the machine at that point. But when all that failed, like, Russia did dissolve, like, they tried to have a revolution, it failed. Like, there was revolutionary activity in, like, England. These are the main industrial societies at the time. When that shit failed, then they had to look in on themselves. And once they shut shop and they, they really openly supported other revolutionaries or socialist countries, then... Yeah, because Marx expected over. a revolution in England as opposed to Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Marx really? thought that like advanced yeah. capitalist societies were probably closer to the revolution than yeah. like a feudal society. They are the most conscious. They have seen capitalism in all of its, you know, forms and they know exactly what to expect, so they know how to fight it best. But that what we do know what do we we do notice from history is that Often places where there was some kind of a revolutionary change, particularly a socialist revolutionary change, mm. it was just backwaters. It was dirt poor. Yes. Whether it be China, whether yes. it be Russia, yeah. uh, Vietnam. Cambodia. Cambodia. Cuba. Uh, Cuba. You didn't have revolutions in Germany. You didn't have revolution in yes. England. You're like yeah. what was expected before. Yeah. So somehow, I guess feudal societies are more conducive to revolution mm. than capitalist societies are. They are e- more easily taken over than a capitalist society because capitalist society has an inbuilt and burrowed in establishment and elite that are very powerful and very conscious that's the thing they know exactly well, more what's going on powerful than like a bunch of feudal lords and well like the feudal lords are i guess they're like you know talking about monarchies and kings like stuff like that they're they're puppets in a sense um, and they are given their their things by birthright. Capitalists work hard for their shit. They know how to get on top, and they know how to fucking stay there. They are clever people. 
They didn't get, they weren't born into that position. Yeah, and true. they know how to fucking fight for shit tooth and nail. Yes. And that's why it failed build a factory Germany. from nothing. And that's why, yeah, and that's why it failed in Germany. That's why any revolutionary activity failed in, in Britain. What about, what about the argument though that it's just, Germany came pretty close, though. They got they got really close. close. Indonesia came really close. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, that's no big deal. Isn't that interesting? Fucking yeah. Why that? Well, exactly. Why there? But like, the, oh, the, I think uh, the, the first no, but he, it's not Britain, is it? No, no, no. But like, uh, Germany lost the First World War. Britain didn't. So Germany. That's why Hitler also took over. Like the state was already was weak. Exactly real, the point that you're like talking so, about. Wasn't it, didn't he call himself a socialist? Hitler? He's a national socialist. Yeah. Yeah, but like. D- not necessarily in the socialist sense that you're thinking. Right. Hmm. He rode the wave of popular support for socialism. He wasn't an idiot. He knew exactly right. what the people wanted. Right, right, right. And he gave him that fact, to a certain extent. Right. His entire platform was, if you elect me, I'm going to get rid of the communists. Oh, well, like that's right. how the Nazi party came into power is because of that communist revolution that almost happened. They were the people on the ground Fighting oh, the communists. Oh fuck! Yeah, yes, more you fighting know. in the streets and teach that. OG and <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> fuck! Wow. Yeah, it's just. What about the idea that it's it's not just <coughs> the elite controlling the public. It's also just the public is aware, and they're kind of just cool with it. Yeah, that and it's what I'm talking about: class consciousness. Like people are desensitized to capitalism today or market economies and stuff like that. They expect to be consumers and not players. Yes. And so if you've bred and instilled that ideology into generation after generation of people, um, then what first do they have for change really? Mm. Because like, but that's the whole thing. Like people in those feudal societies did have the thirst for change. They, they had the thirst for fucking rebellion. That's for sure. They yes. got pissed off, and like yeah. if this king or whoever it was stood, like stood out, of, like stepped out of line, they'd fucking kill him. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Is just like but they, they must be benefiting from it if they if they're fine to be even kind those of those peasants weren't revolutionary. They didn't kill the king and say we're taking over. They just said, all right, now you're in charge. Now don't fuck it up. And they gave it to someone else. <laughs> they didn't like, you know, try and change the game, man. So, like, you need people that are understanding of their worth and their value in that society, which is what working class people used to know. That's why we have things like labor parties and stuff like that, because there are two forms of struggle that Marx talks about. There's the economic struggle, which is, you know, getting out there, picketing, joining a union, all that sort of stuff, physically confronting the system by facing your boss and telling him get fucked and there's the political struggle so that is infiltrating the political system with your own people and instilling your policy and reform and trying to get that going now we still have labor parties and workers parties and social democratic parties but they have no no attachment to revolutionary ambition anymore it was in like 19 but did they ever yeah i was just about to say in the in the 1980s on the nine on the 90s the British Labour Party or the English Labour Party under Tony Blair was the it was the first time they scratched out one of their objectives um, in their like kind of their doctrine which was seizing the means of production. They still had that in their party book. Really, they scratched that out in the way. Bro, the Labour left back in the day were just commies, like they were straight up communists. Yeah, like half of your Labour Party was more than half. They were the dominant faction. 
were communists, which is why they could never ban the Communist Party in Australia. There was a massive case. Yeah. Because there was just no, I think it was also the fact that people thought, like, you know, you open up a Pandora's box when you do that. Yeah, and that they didn't was the go argument, down but a lot of it was people being afraid because a lot of people were communists at the time. Were there that many that were communists? Yeah, yeah, they were legit communists. Like, they weren't communists in the sense, like, like some modern people are. Like, oh, I think Marx is cool. They were legitimately communists. Yeah. They believed yeah. in everything that Mystery just said. And they were... Why do you think they were in the Labour Party? They were infiltrating the st- institutions. Yeah, they were infiltrating it, but that's yeah. what I'm saying. I don't think it was like the majority of people in the Labour Party. I think people in the Labour Party were mostly of this idea that, no, like it's just you make sure that workers get a, f- a better cut. That was kind of their objective. It wasn't this idea of, you know, the, the, the overthrow and changing society so that... Maybe it, not majority. I don't like, know the exact numbers, but a lot of them legitimately wanted to overthrow society as well. Back in the day. Socialists, back a hundred years ago, communists, socialists, whatever you want to call them, like Labour, Democrats, like these people did have revolutionary ideals. They understood what they were doing. They were well-educated people, well-read, well-versed. They weren't dumbed down and fed the stuff that they decided to, you know, consume in terms of like literature and all that sort of stuff. They knew exactly what was going on. They would go along to like be parts of associations and get active and talk about politics and stuff like that. If you go back to like the American Revolution, that is the ideal of democracy right there. The idea of freedom and the pursuit of happiness has got nothing to do with being able to do whatever the fuck you want to do. The pursuit of happiness is just being able to associate with other people and talk politics. That's what the founding fathers thought was the pursuit of happiness. So, like, these people, 100 years ago, they were forming Labour parties, like in Australia, which was registered as a socialist party. The Labour Party was originally a socialist party. They knew exactly what the fucking end game was. They might not have been revolutionaries in themselves, but, like, they knew that step one was... Okay, okay, so it's like it's a a soft revolution party as opposed to just a... It's step one. It's get politically active and get involved, and then if you do that enough then quantitative changes lead to a qualitative switch. Mm-hmm. Just and the, make a bit closer the, the, reason the, the reason that I've just gotten really interested in it is why I started reading Das Kapital again is because I read a book that kind of changed it. I talked to Ali, for, he's so bored of this conversation now, but <laughs> uh, this book that was saying living standards have increased so much in the developed world that there's no appetite for it anymore because at some point, like, your needs are more than met. Yep. And people, it's very un, not uncommon that you're on your eighty, your $100,000 a year. Yep. You've got more than enough money. Yeah. Um, and at that point, there's no thirst for it. Yes. Yeah. People become complacent when they are comfortable. There's no doubt about that. But, like, let me turn that idea on its head and say that if people are so well provided for in this current system because there's just it produces so much shit, then why do we need to have people that control things for monetary or profitable reasons? Why can't we just provide for society? Well, I there's guess so it's just the same stuff. argument that Ali was saying is that it's hard to organise society in that really democratic way. You kind of do need this, like, no, fuck you, you're twisting that bolt. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. keep the innovation going. And, like, at that time it was necessary, especially if you're 
you know, pulling feudal Russia out and trying to make it an industrial society or you're pulling feudal China out and you're trying to make them an industrial society, you need someone to say, yes, turn that bolt, you stay on that production line and you do this kind of thing. But you, you in today's society, do we need that like thing that I was talking about before? Do we need a violent takeover? Do we need a revolutionary moment that's like some yeah, armed coup or something like that? Can't we just have that through our existing democratic institutions? Mm. Can't we have a referendum that first step is, you know, create the republic? Then, you know, after that we sit down and we really think about how society should be run and what our fucking priorities are. And if they are human rights, like modern human rights, not like, you know, human rights from at the end of like World War Two. But like, you know, making sure that everyone has a house, making sure that everyone has access to electricity, making sure people have clean water and like even access to the internet. That should be a human right. If you start to change these kind of ideals because society is so prosperous anyway, we can deliver this to these people. Take these things off the market. Why do these things have to be commodities? Why does housing have to be a commodity? Why does telecommunications infrastructure and electricity have to be a commodity? Give those things to the people and let's let them do their own things and they'll decide whether they want to be players. Well, I suppose it's just like the, the same thing that the Labor Party came across in 2019, which is they tried housing reform mm. and it was thumped down. Yeah. They lost the mandate. And it was because, as we were saying before, you can blame all of these housing conglomerates that are running Singapore and Brazil and stuff. And yeah, they have like a bigger share of the market. But as we said, there are a bunch of boomers and stuff that also own these houses as well. Yes. And they don't want it. They, they don't. don't want to change that. No, because no, they've got a lot of stuff invested in that. And like we talked about before, they've been sold a dream. This is their nest egg and this is what's going to get them. And it But it delivered as well. That's yeah. the other thing. Yeah, but like if you provided them with an adequate means of living after retirement... Like you supported them. You said, don't worry, no matter what sh happens, when you turn 65, we're going we're gonna to give you this and we're going to give you that. We're going to look after all the old people. You would have people less resistant to giving up their retirement plan. I don't know about that, man. Come on. Like, do you think someone is going to give up seven houses? We're like, no, oh, I'm getting an adequate pension. That's fine. Don't know. Until I, they I, well, they tried. They already tried it with these reforms to housing and negative gearing, even that was too much. But, like, the system isn't there to support these people giving things up. They don't have the security. Oh, like a buyback like Howard with the guns oh, or but something. But, like, just giving them adequate social infrastructure that when they retire they're going to be looked after appropriately. Most people's, like, idea that when they retire they're fucking on their own and the, the, the pension's not going to cover it for them unless they do have a fucking backup plan like seven houses or something like that to sustain their current lifestyle. Well, well, that was the genius of superannuation, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's kind of... It's not delivered in the, in the way that they had hoped for because, like, it should have changed incrementally over time. There should have been a lot of reform and change to the superannuation types of schemes and retirement schemes to keep it up to date with, like, what we were talking about before, inflation and stuff like that. There should have been progressive changes to it, developments and improvements to that system yes. to make it relevant. Yes. Because if someone who's on 150k a year, like a middle class slash, you know, professional, and like unless they're going to get 150k in their pension, which they're not going to fucking get, they need to have fucking seven houses or whatever the fuck they think is going to give them their lifestyle and mm. their ability to keep living the way that they want to live. Mm. Mm. And so if you don't have that social infrastructure, don't ask them to give up their fucking houses. 
But that's what they were trying to build, right? And, like, it's the same thing. It's just, like, the Labor Party was trying to build that superannuation that gave you that very safe nest egg when yes. you died. And it was just absolutely gutted by the Liberals when they came in. And so you don't have that. However, you still do have, for the first time in history, which is, like, everyone always saying, oh, you're so neoliberal and you know, all this kind of stuff. It's like, that guy <laughs> gave the working class, all of them, mm. a say in the investment, in, in the investment sphere of the economy. Mm. That's a huge change. Yes, it wasn't delivered correctly, but it's still like that, if you're talking about a social progress where people own these kinds of things, yeah. nothing has been bigger than that. Yeah. And it's like the, the the question is though that yeah, that's these things happen, but man, every time there's ever this argument, the guy that is supporting capitalism will always say, "You're not factoring in human greed," huh. and at that point, I'm just like. He's won. <laughs> he's won. He's won. It's just like, there's I mean, no way. Like, I'm not giving up my seven houses. Fuck you. Like, of course you're going to think that. Look, there's a whole... Marx also had a take on that, commodity fetishization. It's like... It, it, the idea is like lack of class consciousness of like how this is fitting into the bigger schemes. You're, you're alienated, so you start finding value in commodities that don't necessarily have as much value as you think they do. Yes which was like the whole idea of use value. Like every commodity has a certain amount of use value and then it has uh, exchange value. So maybe the exchange value might be different from use value. Like Yes, yes. Anyways, that, that's a whole topic altogether. We're running right. out of time. Mister, do you guys, uh, Ron, do you want to wrap up with uh, some questions? Yeah, yeah, we'll start. We'll start. We'll continue this on the up late. So if you want to hear the rest of it, you have to sign up to that. Yep. Thanks for joining so us. Straight after box. <laughs> Talk about fetishizing commodities, huh? Thanks for joining us for this week. Uh, make sure you follow Mystery. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel, and he uh, check him out. He's good. If you want to hear more, if you're interested, if you're intrigued, make sure you check that out. The, there's going to be a link in the description for you to find it easily. And thanks, and we'll see you for the up late. And otherwise, we'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.